five-star autopsy where we examine the cause of death for the greatest creative runs in pop culture history, which means we're talking movies, we're talking music, we're talking comic books, we're talking literature. Um, I'm your, your host, Tony McMillan, and today on The Slab, we're discussing filmmaker John Carpenter. John Carpenter is one of my, my favorite filmmakers, easily. He's also one of the ones that, as a kid, was one of the first ones I actually kind of latched onto and um, really kind of identified, oh, there's a, there's a person behind the camera making these things. And when we discuss films, the, the thing that to kind of keep in mind is we have kind of agreed as a culture that directors are the closest thing to an author of a film there is. That being said... Films are amazingly collaborative, and almost almost all art is, unless you're you know you're a novelist or you or you write and draw your own comic books, and you still have an editor probably who who does contribute something. But film is film film has so many other cooks in the kitchen, no matter what. Even if you're an author, even if you have the final you know say on things, even if you are like John Carpenter, you're, you're directing, sometimes writing, sometimes doing the music, sometimes helping with the editing. You know, holding holding the camera sometimes. Even if you're involved in that much, you're not you're not acting out every role. You're not doing this and that. You're not doing the lighting. There's always going to be stuff um, that's going to be up to whoever you choose or whoever is thrust upon you to help you make your movies. But that being said, I, I do think that if we're going to pick somebody to be the the author of a movie, the director is you know probably the best choice. And John Carpenter is definitely an author. He he. Um, his films, you can easily, even though they all almost always say John Carpenter's blah blah blah, even if they didn't have that, you would feel it. Um, his types, of, the stories he gravitates towards, the way he does his shots, his themes, his mood, it, it's it's all there. It's all very signature, and it's and it's one of the things I, I love about him. And even when he has um, you know, some flubs, which he does, he has a long career and he's got some real uh, stinkers. They're always interesting and they're always um distinct and. and at least almost always, they feel very much um, uh, intended to be what they are, for better or for worse. And so we're going to go through his run, and what's cool about this run is um, this is a broken run, meaning that, you know, true run is consecutive greatness, right? It's at least, I would say at least four great works in a row. Maybe you could say a mini run is three, but that's kind of, you know... You know, anybody can do three three great things in a row. John Carpenter, he doesn't he doesn't get there, guys. In my estimation, he gets very close. He has a great run, but right in the middle of it, there's going to be a, a dud. And so we're going to discuss that. So, and I think that a lot of filmmakers, it's really hard to have uh, one of those great consecutive runs uh, because most most directors are doing stuff for hire too. You know, they're they're doing their passion projects. But then they're also going to turn around and do something for the studio, do something to, to get some more clout, get, get some more money to, to you know help them for their next project, which they're really invested in. That's just the way it is. So, and John Carpenter, um, he, he's no different. Like if, especially um, in the middle part of his career, he has to kind of acquiesce to um, the business side of things. And since he he had a few um, underperformers, he's he's got to kind of you know do paycheck stuff. And he still does a great job, a lot of it. But you'll you'll see. So let's start with John Carpenter, right? John Carpenter's first uh, movie, Dark Star, is not on the run. This is not where the run begins. Dark Star, to me, is a promising debut, uh, but it feels like what it is, which is basically a student film which is stretched out to make it a feature, right? Um, there's some cool stuff, but it does feel 
very amateur. It feels a little um, clunky. Um, so to me, this is you know there's some really cool elements you're gonna see um, him kind of uh, build up on later on, but this is not the start of the real run. What is the start? Is the next one, Assault on Precinct 13. Um, this is where the run begins to me. This now this is not a jaw dropping debut. First off, it's not a debut, um, but it is a powerful prototype, even more sort of even more so than Dark Star. This is a uh, this is him becoming the John Carpenter we're going to get to know. Um, he's, he, Assault on Precinct 13 is very gritty, very grindhouse, um, and also what, what happens to a lot of John Carpenter's films, which I think is really good, is that it's very lean. He gets to the meat of the matter. Um, there's not a lot of extra... There's there's no fluff. It's just like, if, this, if it's important, it's in the film. If it's not, we're not even going to include it. Um... It, and what's really fun about Assault on Precinct 13 is for me, I didn't see it until uh, years later after I saw like Halloween the thing and Big Trouble in Little China and a lot of these these more um, popular films he did. And going back, I was like, oh man, he, he fucking had it like really early in the career. He really had, um, he had everything that I would love about him. First off, you're going to find this a lot in a lot of his films. They're westerns. That aren't westerns. He he, it's funny. He's never done a real western, and um, a bunch of his films you can kind of break them down to be oh this these are the elements of a western, uh, of a different setting, different time period. Um, maybe, maybe flips genre, but it, deep down it feels like a western. And this is that. This this is uh, uh, Rio Bravo. This, this is a bunch of guys who don't get along, who are stuck in a a, a place and situation, fighting off hordes of enemies. So it's that. Um, you you also see like um he, he you know he always has not always that's not true I'm gonna say always a lot and I don't mean always but he often has uh, an incredible synth score that he does himself John Carpenter is a great musician he's kind of right now that's kind of um that's what he's doing he's touring around with his son and a few other musicians is playing his themes and playing his own original music and it's really well received and the albums are great um the 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 score for Assault and Precinct Thirteen it just sounds so badass. It sounds it's really like most of the stuff minimal. It's it's almost like a future primitive. It's it's uh, synthy and especially for the like, this is you know this is seventy six we're talking Dark Star seventy four. This is seventy six, late seventies. You know I'm sure this the synth score was you know really kind of crazy sounding a little bit, but um he does it in a very bare bones way. Like he does everything. He basically he gets to um it's like a Nirvana song. It just gets to like the most important parts that you want, you know, the big dynamic power chords. And that's what he does. And the score just kind of goes on and it just, he always knows when to employ it. And I think he he recorded it within like, like nine hours or something. One day he just recorded and this, he didn't record it to the picture. He just kind of made a score and he's like, I kind of know I need like these four moods and it did that. And then he later on inserted it when he needed it in the film and it somehow works great. So, and when I say it's a prototype, you're also going to see stuff like um, things that he'll kind of uh, play with later, like the bad guys in Assault. They're basically, they're normal human beings, <laughs> ostensibly, but um, they're almost all silent and sort of like supernatural ghouls. They're kind of zombies. They um, they attack in hordes. They um, don't seem to have any emotion. Um, I'm trying to remember if if any of them like scream out when they get shot or killed, like I, I don't think so. They're basically all like a, a horde of Michael Myers before Michael Myers was around, and that's kind of fun to play with. 
and the other thing which is on display here and it's, it's in dark star too but this is when it's really kind of um pronounced and articulated john carpenter has a very cynical anti-authority kind of badass working man philo- working man's philosophy he um doesn't trust authority he doesn't trust people who um who um exploit uh the people who work for them, he doesn't trust bosses, doesn't trust the government, doesn't trust cops, doesn't trust um, in anyone you know who who is there to to um, supposedly uh, take care of things. He doesn't. He in his bones, he goes fuck you. I don't. I don't trust you. And that's in almost all his movies. And this, even though the, one of the main characters here is a cop, the rest of the cops, um, you know, they don't they, they don't do much to help him. And he's actually you know this is uh, seventy six. He's a black cop and. There's, there's, if I'm trying to remember correctly, none of the other cops are up in his face racist, but you can tell he's an outsider. And he comes, he has a, a line where he talks about they're in the really crummy part of uh, uh, Los Angeles, and he's uh, someone who works at the precinct is, t- you know, talking about, talking about how scary it is. And he's like, you know, I grew up a block away from here, you know, and little digs like that kind of show you that he's an outsider. And that's another thing. His characters, his heroes, who, you know, I use the word hero, and most of them are still pretty murky. Um, they're outsiders, and they don't trust the status quo. And this this assault on Precinct Thirteen establishes that. The other main character is, of course, uh, a prisoner on his way to getting executed, and he has to band with the cop to fight off this horde of bad guys. And <laughs> you know, this is an early John Carpenter. And I don't think he ever um, uh, tops the brutality of this movie. Um, there's a, there's a the most famous scene is a little girl getting ice cream and she um, gets the wrong flavor because the ice cream man's kind of distracted by these hoods who are in the neighborhood and he uh, she comes back and, and I think she says like this isn't vanilla swirl or something like that this isn't a swirl and then she gets shot right in the face and <laughs> it's it, you know I'm laughing because it is hilarious but it's um it's basically it's so it's so sh- over the top shocking uh and that's early in the film and it kind of and the film never really uh, tries to exceed that but it's um it, it's i think it's it's demonstrating what kind of move what, what john carpenter's capable of if he wants to he wants to you know thrall you and i get john carpenter said a couple times like he wouldn't do that now he's he's older and he probably wouldn't go for the shock value but this is you know this is early in his career this film um super independent he he's just trying to get a lot of eyes on it and so you know, he, he's got to play with the shock value of it. And it's funny, you know, he shoots a little girl in the face, but the next film um, is a horror film, and it's uh, remarkably bloodless. It's actually uh, famously bloodless, and that's partly from a note from the producer of the film. But it, um, it's just funny that, like, his John Carpenter's probably his most gruesome moment is not really, it's more of an action film. It's not really a horror film. You know, he's like a master of horror. But the next film we're going to talk about is... We're, we're going to call this, if, if Assault and Precinct 13 starts to run as um, the powerful prototype, right? Like, you know, we, we see somebody, we're going we're to keep an eye on him, right? The next one delivers. This is this is, this is is the arrival of John Carpenter. This is the, um, this is the most, this is the influential work. This is the, the phenomenon. And unfortunately for John Carpenter, this is, um, this work is the work that casts a shadow on the rest of his career because he can never really repeat its its success or um match its popularity it's we're of course talking about john carpenter's halloween 1978 i mean what's left to be said about halloween um 
this is the the film that solidified the slasher as a subgenre of horror. Um, this is the film that brought John Carpenter's uh, his name on top of all, all most of his subsequent films. This is um, for a long time was the most successful independent movie up until I think Blair Witch in like '93 or something. It I forget how, it cost like definitely less than a million. It was I think it was like fifty thousand or hundred thousand. It was extremely cheap, and it. You know, if you count the franchise, it's it's spawned, it's it's yielded billions of dollars, and beyond that, um, it has it's made a new subgenre horror which persists, and that's that's pretty not a lot of directors, a lot of not a lot of artists can can claim that that they helped create another like entire movement of music or or, or art. Like I said, music. So I was thinking of Black Sabbath. So you have a Led Zeppelin is definitely um, bigger than Black Sabbath in a lot of ways. And without Led Zeppelin, there would be no Black Sabbath. But Black Sabbath is the direct reason why heavy metal became a thing. They they didn't in- invent really anything that is heavy metal, but they put it all together in the right package, and it made it popular enough that other groups would follow suit. And John Carpenter's The Halloween does Halloween does the same thing. Where there are, like, you know, the films like Black Christmas, there's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's all the Giallo Italian uh, movies, which are basically slashers. Um, there's Psycho, there's all these different things. And he kind of, I think, you know, instinctively just put this movie together, not, you know, trying to create a movement, but that's what it did. It's like, okay, so I got the silent killer who is a man, but there, he, he's bordering on supernatural. And by the end of the film, it seems like it's basically. Um, it's doing everything but saying this guy is supernatural. He he never says a word. His motivation is irrelevant, and that's that's something like he'll kind of come back to sometimes. And to John Carpenter, um, he said in interviews too, like you know, evil. Sometimes the worst thing about evil is that there is no real reason for it. It just just is. He talks about growing up uh, in in the Jim Crow kind of era and just like seeing all these people who, you know, you see at church or at the supermarket seem to be nice, but they're just evil, racist people. And it's just like, oh, just the way it is. There's just this awfulness everywhere. And maybe behind, um, you know, you know, the eyes of someone you think is a, a nice, uh, normal person, there's just hate. And, you know, the character of Michael Myers, a little boy who just one day seems to snap and kill his sister, that's, that's to me, very much um, brought on by... John Carpenter's kind of upbringing, and he also talks about you know he um I think he volunteered at a, a mental health facility a long time ago and he saw some kid there who had really um had the devil's eyes as, as he he gives Loomis the speech about Michael Myers, and John Carpenter thought of that too and you know he threw that together and then with Deborah Hill, his uh, producing partner, who um they produced uh, together they they produced and uh, wrote Halloween and they've also done other films together and I think they were uh, at the time of Halloween were a couple too. Like a you know a romantic couple, they were full on partners in every way. Those two um, did this really smart thing where Halloween is like um, it's set in the suburbs. It's it's supposed to be a safe place. It's supposed to be a fun time. It's Halloween, and you, what you do with that is it's sort of the trick from Jaws. With Jaws is a nice summery um, beach town. It's basically a place that's supposed to be warm and great and um, and and safe. And of course. That just accentuates all the danger and scary stuff if you throw that in there. That's what Halloween does with um, Haddonfield, Illinois. Um, but like I said, the movie, you know, 
you have this movie, it creates the Friday the 13th, which is a direct ripoff of it, and there's, you know, eventually Nightmare on Elm Street and all these other films and, and lesser slashers. Everyone's got a mask, everyone's got a knife, everyone's after, you know, a young teenage girl, all these things that um, John Carpenter kind of sets up in the film is, you know, it helps him, you know, do the things he wants to do next, but he's never able to, like, match it, and how could you? I mean, it's, he... He stumbled upon, he half stumbled and, and half um, directly, um, like intentionally made this film, that which is like a juggernaut. It just, he, there's no way to beat it. And so I think even his um, successes later on, and they're honestly, at least financially, they aren't a lot, but there are some successes which are later in life, they're, they're um, reappraised and, and there's huge audiences and cult audiences and um, other filmmakers talk about them. There's always sort of this um, this shadow cast, and that's one of those things I think is really interesting in runs. And um, a lot of times, the shadow cast and run is from a masterpiece, and and I think Halloween is a masterpiece, but I don't think it is John Carpenter's masterpiece. I think it's um, probably probably the next one, but I think there's a film later on which, to me, is uh, he he never gets better, and um, and, and you know we'll we'll get there when we get there, but Halloween. I mean, Halloween is something, you know, it's, it's called a, it's named after a holiday. So you're gonna watch it every year. Basically it's, it's perennial. It's, it's never going to go away. I mean, Halloween was, was, was still hot. Um, at least it was still important to people, but when scream came around in the nineties and it, it, that just kind of cemented like, cause they're going to talk about Halloween a bunch and and talk about how important Halloween and, and, and be influenced by Halloween. Once that comes around, it's it's Halloween is so entrenched now, and even and the funny thing to me is there haven't been there hasn't been a single good sequel. Halloween two is okay. Um, the the first Halloween uh, remake, not the remake, the one that's called Halloween that came out a couple years ago, that was okay, and then the recent one was terrible. And I thought HBO sucked. I mean, I as a kid I liked Part Four, but now I think it's terrible. It's funny like this. You know, despite despite um, everyone in the world just trying to to drive this thing into the ground, that original film was so good. John Carpenter, uh, Dean Cundey, his uh, cinematographer, uh, Deborah Hill, Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, the whole the whole crew, they made something. It's just magic, and um, it, nothing can diminish it. The shine on that first one, you, you can't you can't get take it away. So. I mean, that's incredible, right? Unfortunately, John Carpenter falls it by making his first dud. And this is going to be controversial. I know people uh, love the next film, uh, but I've tried. But 1980's The Fog, to me, this is, this this could have been great. This could have been a great, fiery follow-up to Halloween. But unfortunately, I I think it's it's just... um, it's a little toothless, you know. I, I think that what happens is that there's great elements, right? Um, uh, first off, too, it's maybe his best looking film. The cinematography, the setting, it's it's gorgeous. Um, and some great shots, and the, the actual um, visual idea of the fog itself being um, this menacing uh, force of nature. The way they shoot it, it, it does look great, and it, it does it does make you believe this is some sort of sentient fog or something. Like that's that's great. What happens to me, I think, is um, it's too scattershot for all the characters. So, you, you know, you can have an ensemble cast, and I, I love that, right? But no one's performance is um, 
charismatic enough. Uh, no one's character is written well enough for me to really hang my hat on it. And so you get all these kind of different vignettes of different characters dealing with the fog. And most of them I don't really care about. And I, I, and I don't, um, I just don't, uh, unlike a Halloween, for instance, where you have the teenage girls and their conversations and the, the way the actresses play them. Um, uh, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy spending time with those characters for the most part in the fog. I'm not really, um, not having too much, too, too good of a time. The beginning is great with the campfire, which, um, campfire scene with the guy telling the story. And that's a reshoot. Um, there are some major reshoots on this movie. Adrian Barbeau's character, uh, the the disc jockey, I like most of her stuff. I think that's a really cool character. She's out in the lighthouse. Disc jockeys are always kind of cool and remote, and you get to play the voice. Uh, you know, she, in a way, becomes a de facto narrator of the film. It, I, I think that works well, but stuff like Jamie Lee Curtis's character, and um, I feel bad, the mustache guy, uh, Thrill Me from... Um, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm forgetting everyone's name, but uh, the mustache guy, uh, who's, who's also in... Um, <laughs> Halloween. People are gonna crucify me for not knowing Mustache Man's name, but uh, I'm not gonna look it up. I'm just gonna call him Mustache Man, or or Thrill Me, um, from Night of the Creeps. Um, he, Mustache Man starts this whole thing where every once in a while John Carpenter has these um, these sort of like Kroger brand Chuck Norris guys who are, they just get laid a lot. It feels like, and they 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 this like women find them irresistible, and they're just kind of like weird potato men with mustaches and um this guy is funny in night of the creeps he's really funny to me he's he's got some cool lines and stuff like that and this movie he's got some okay stuff like i like this the stuff when they're in their car he picks up jamie lee curtis the hitchhiker and she's like you're not weird and he's like yes i am that's fun and th- that get that but he's you know it doesn't do it for me man i know it's the late 70s i know these guys feel like sort of like uh stand-ins from john carpenter himself maybe because he's got such a prominent mustache in my mind but um I'm not buying him bagging Jamie Lee Curtis, and this dude's also the main guy in um, Halloween Three, and he also just like uh, he's just like scoring left and right. I, I know I get hung up on this, but it's just it's really distracting. I'm like, really? I mean, I know Burt Reynolds was like the fucking top dog in the world and stuff, but I just this guy isn't even a Burt Reynolds to me. I don't I don't know. So that 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 takes me out of the fog a little bit. But the big thing with the fog too is like you have um. You you got this like uh, this really cool premise. There's a really good elements to it, um, but the, the suspense is not there. The um, the scares aren't there, and and the characters are are just kind of nothing. So all the momentum of the film to me is is t- t- is this evaporates like a fog, and by the end of it, it's just like oh man, you couldn't you could have made this really great spooky thing, and it would have been a great like one two punch from at Halloween, but I think, you know, it's it's not that, unfortunately. And so that kills the run, right? But he comes back, right? So the, the, the truth is, you know, this is a broken run. So the run has been broken to me. And this is much like Spielberg's 1941, which is nestled right in the middle of his great run of early films. And it kills his run. It's this thing where it's just like, you know... Um, I, and John Carpenter, you know, he tried to reshoot a bunch of film scenes with more gore and more scares for the fog, and it didn't save it. And he, he, he himself has kind of said it's not one of his best films. Um, and it's too bad, right? But he comes back with Escape from New York, 1981, and he, he it's back. He's, he's definitely back. The, this is a start of an, another run, really, and, and it's unfortunately short-lived as well. But 
if if this would have came out after Halloween, the run would have been great. The run would have continued, no problems. And so this is sort of the writing of the ship. This is John Carpenter, okay, going, okay, I kind of, you know, made a mistake here. I gotta, I gotta figure this out. And what's cool about this one is that a, a lot of things kind of come together for him. So he, what's he's writing the ship, and he's also, but he's not just returning. To, he's not just trying to do Halloween again, right? Or even Assault on Precinct Thirteen. He's doing something a little new. He's doing this is his first adventure movie, right? And I love when someone, if they can like write their career, but also not like have to retread or, or go back to, to a safe spot where they've already established themselves. He, he's going, he's he's going, he's going somewhere new, and it's gonna work out. And so he he brings about he's got the sci-fi from Dark Star a little bit, and maybe the crime, you know, action that was in Assault Precinct on Precinct Thirteen. But he's merging those together, and he's adding this new kind of adventure element, and he's bringing the he has. He has a really important um, new relationship in this film. That's of Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell is going to be one of his great collaborators. Um, they've created a bunch of really um, kind of amazing characters that stand the test of time, and some really uh, quotable characters. And Snake Plissken is 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 chief among them. Uh, the character of Snake Plissken, he's he's actually got an outsized influence from from the movie he the movies he's been in the movies you know they did okay um the first one especially but um people even they haven't seen escape from new york they kind of know who snake plissken is or they have some vague idea or they've seen other stuff like metal gear solid things that have been directly lifted from his character and it's funny is john carpenter is a big uh, video game player he talks about his, his retirement his old age now he just loves to play games and smoke pot and chill out and it's funny he's got snake plissken and then uh uh nada from uh they live later on who have had sort of uh lines of dialogue as well as characteristics and even their names taken from the movies he made and put into video games so duke nukem He'll, he'll he'll say the line that Nada does in uh, They Live, which is I've I've come here to, to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all about bubblegum. He steals that line, but then Snake Plissken, of course, uh, Solid Snake from Metal Gear Solid, it's all a real direct uh, lift off of him. But Snake Plissken, Kurt Russell does this uh, really great performance where he's sort of uh, <laughs> his voice is very much a Clint Eastwood voice. He's doing the Clint Eastwood kind of uh, dry, growly voice, and but he's he's just kind of taking the fucking piss out of it and he's playing this character who is a badass and he's you know lethal and dangerous but he's also it's kind of a it's so over the top it's a little bit of a joke and not as much as he does with jack burton later on in big trouble in little china not like that that's that's a full-on comedic performance but snake plissken really rides a line where you know you can't tell if the direction and the actor or are intentionally trying to you know mess with um sort of Clingswood and, and the machismo kind of thing, or if it's just so badass that it's ludicrous, it, it maybe it's a little bit of both. You know, I think that's kind of um, a fun thing to kind of never have an answer for. Well, Snake Plissken, the, John Carpenter creates, like, his uh, his version of a superhero is this, um, like, he basically, he personifies his person, uh, John Carpenter's philosophy of um, fuck authority, uh, deep cynicism, um kind of, you know, damaged, a damaged, um, outsider who 
there's not a lot of explanation. And like like Michael Myers, it's sort of like um, the reason why is sort of irrelevant. You know, you, you don't know exactly what, you know, the character Stink Plissken was a war hero. Something happened. He became a criminal. And he doesn't even want to save the president. He doesn't give a shit. He goes, and he tells the guy, you know, fuck your war. Fuck your president. Like, you know, and you, you don't really need to know why. I guess there was an opening scene they shot which showed them the bank heist that um, gets Snake Plissken arrested, and they cut it out, and I think that's smart because it's kind of cooler if he just comes on the screen and everyone, all the characters know about him. He's legendary, and there's all these running jokes about, I thought you were dead, and this and this and that. Um, I thought you'd be taller, comes on later on in the series, but um, it, it's funny. A lot of times, I think stories try to set up certain characters to be mythic or at least be um, have a gravitas, and it fails because they're trying too hard. This works, and I think Kurt Russell is a big part of that. His Snake Plissken is one for the ages, all-timer. Now, Escape from New York, really fun film, great premise, um, cool action pieces. James Cameron uh, was doing some visual effects, so there's some cool visual effects of miniatures uh, early in the film that still look really fun. I mean, you can tell they're miniatures, but I just think they look neat, so that's fine with me. Um, The one thing this does make apparent is John Carpenter is not great at directing action so the actual actual action scenes um it's not he's not a james cameron he doesn't have the choreography down he doesn't have the ballet aspect of it down so they're a little they're a little clunky and so he he does better in his career with action but he never really becomes to in my mind a great action director despite having these great action films in his repertoire he just um he, it's it's he he doesn't get as good as good at action as he does at suspense like he, he like there's never an action scene that I could think of in his career which would match like the suspense of uh, Halloween where Jim Lee Curtis is looking around and Michael Myers's uh, white mask appears out of the shadows behind her he never has something like that so that's one what's one di- downside but um you know it it it's this film is a great film it's it's the riding of the ship. And it also he he gets to meet some um, Kurt Russell and he gets to meet some collaborators who are gonna you know be really important to his career later on, and he also he's opening up like he doesn't have to be the horror guy he can do other things, and um, it's almost the Voltron moment and the Voltron moment is when someone's done a bunch of different types of of, of works and then they bring it all together for for you know. A, a great work. They, they they figure out all the way to use everything they've learned all at once. And I think that is the next film. And that this next film is also, to my mind, his absolute masterpiece. I'm talking, of course, about 1982's The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. So this is a really interesting movie to be your masterpiece because it's basically a remake. Even though it's not really a remake, it's... Um, the original thing um, was based on a novella uh, called, or I think it wasn't a novella, I think it's a short story called uh, Who Goes There? And they they radically changed it, and that was a film from the 50s, and maybe it was the 40s. But anyways, John Carpenter loved that movie, and in fact, if you watch um, Halloween, that's one of the scary old movies the kids are watching when, when um, they're being babysat, which is a really fun little Easter egg, that knowing that a couple years later, John Carpenter would make the thing. So anyways, it's a remake of that, but his, John Carpenter's version, falls a lot closer to the original story, but then it also doesn't, because the creature is, the creature is something, the creature from the story is a changeling, yes, but what um, John Carpenter and his special effects um, 
Guru Rabotine do with the creature is make it so this creature can emulate and become whatever it's touched. And it's been traveling the universe, so it's touched countless other organisms, other alien creatures. So it's basically, it's it can be anything. It's limitless. It's it, the only limit is the possibility, is the imagination and the um, the practical know-how of Robotine's uh, special effects uh, crew, and John and what John Carpenter could figure out how to, how to shoot to make it look good. Um, they they of course the the thing has become um, it's become a huge classic in horror and sci-fi. It's become most people, I think, will say it's the height of practical special effects, at least special uh, practical uh, creature effects. Um, it's it, uh, but that's not the only reason why it's a great film. The thing is, um, John Carpenter's Voltron moment, where he takes he takes the science fiction, he's um, he he's always loved, and he he used in Dark Star and Escape from New York. He takes the um, the horror and suspense. He's he he um used in halloween and he learned um and also we, we should discuss briefly um between uh halloween and the fog he had a couple tv movies which we're not going to count because we're going to go through his theatrical career one of them's called someone's watch me but that's also a suspense kind of slashery film some good stuff there and then he did elvis which the truth is that's actually where he really worked with kurt russell, kurt russell for the first time so that's important to keep in mind that um he, 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 we're not going to include these in the run because they are theatrical films, and you can tell they're they're made for TV. They're they're, they're a little less. Uh, they're not cinematic. They're not as cin- cinematic as these are, but they're um, they're important elements from both those films. So back to the thing, he's used, still using the suspense from from someone's wa- someone's watching me and the and Halloween, and of course he brings back Kurt Russell, knowing that he has a leading man who. Um, a leading man who's very like the thing itself. He, he's a chameleon. He can do a lot of different things. He, he's of course a great looking guy who can be. Um, he can be um, super. Uh, the quality of the lead man. He, he could be. You know. He, you can't take your eye off him. He can play the leader type. He can also be really funny. He can be. Um, he can be kind of mysterious. He can be brooding. Um, he can be. Men- he can be menacing. And so he knows what Kurt Russell can, can do. And with all this there's still there's some action elements um involved as well it feels like john carpenter it just he's he's gotten he's gotten a black belt in all these different like uh categories right and now he's gonna go for like um now he's gonna try to figure out how to use every single one of those things all at once and it's kind of breathtaking that this is this guy it you know at this point his career he he goes for it in a way, I think few directors have gone for it that early on, I, and it, it pays off. To, to me, the thing, the acting is great. All, there's all these characters, and again, he, John Carpenter is not big on explanations. You don't really know the backstory of any of these guys. And again, like Michael Myers and a little bit like Snake Plissken, you don't get to know the, the backstory, the motivation, why these guys are working out in the remote uh, area of Antarctica, you know, that doesn't, but it doesn't matter. That's John Carpenter's brilliance. That's ir- irrelevant because you, you you get you already you, you know what you need to know. Like there's these guys have something wrong with them. They're, they don't want to be around other people. They're doing this for some reason. They're desperate or they're, they're antisocial enough. And it also makes it so these are guys who are geared towards paranoia. 
because they don't, you know, they, they're they out there, they're already isolated. So now they're going to become even more isolated. I'm not sure who's human, who's not. Um, the thing, it's, it's hard to even talk about. The thing is, it's a huge influence on me. Like I have, um, I wrote a book called An Augmented Fourth, which is essentially uh, the thing meets Black Sabbath. Um, then I did a, a comic book called Serious Creatures about a character named Bobby Feckle, who's a teenage special effects artist. And his whole career is is very much uh, based on Rob Bottin, the special effects guy from The Thing's career. And Rob Bottin, I think, was only 21, or he might have turned 22 when they, they filmed The Thing. And it was his second show he got to do the special effects, like he got to head him up himself. And it's an, it's, it's an absolute um, tour de force. And the story is that he, Rob Bottin, basically lived on set for a year, making all these different special effects and creatures and whatnot. Um... He eventually uh, got, I think after a year, he got rushed to a hospital um, for exhaustion slash maybe having an ulcer. He, he worked himself to, to death making making these uh, effects. And the effects are so important, the thing, because, yeah, they're, they're showstoppers. They're, they're incredibly imaginative and gruesome. And, but they also, um, they all serve the story. The, the, creature, the creature being... Um, so wild and unpredictable, it heightens the paranoia of the characters, and and it also helps this Lovecraftian feel of this otherworldly, um, indifferent force. You don't know what the thing even wants. Is it, is it just an animal trying to survive? Does it want to take over the world? It you'll never know. It's so alien. It's and that's extra horrifying. So the special effects, um, they they all help the story. The thing is, <laughs> the thing about the thing is, huge flop. Just giant, giant flop. Um, and unfortunately, this is a masterpiece that also kills John Carpenter's career. It's it's a misunderstood masterpiece. So film comes out. Famously, uh, it's competing against Steven Spielberg's E.T. And audiences were way more tuned to, you know, a, a kind of a friendlier um, alien who um, w- was here to be uh, be our buddy. And not this cynical dark film, and the film tanks. People say it's disgusting and gross. The special effects are um, distractingly um, gorish and over the top, and um, people are saying how there's no there's no story, it's just just gross stuff happening, and it just gets panned left and right. Doesn't make any money. Critics hate it. Um, John Carpenter's career, you know, the Halloween thing was still, you know, riding high. So even though The Fog did just okay and Escape from New York did okay, they weren't as big as Halloween. It was fine because Halloween is so big and his career is still kind of going up and up and up. And this, the thing was his first big budget. He was working at Universal. He had a lot of money at his disposal. He had, you know, he had, he had quality production for maybe the first time. Um, that basically goes away for a long time. Uh, and he never really, he never gets his footing again. And so this is going to be, you know, he has a couple more shots at the ring. The ring being like, you know, major, major movie production values and stuff like that. But this is going to be a, the real start of um, him being a cult filmmaker and an indie, not, not exactly indie, but like a, a more independent filmmaker that never really quite, he ne- he's never going to be the Spielberg. He's never going to be like the, the more adult Spielberg or whatever, you know. Uh, but you know, in the long run, who's this, who's to say, I, I, I kind of, I kind of think it, it does helps in some ways. 
there are some projects later on that would have benefited from bigger budgets, maybe better actors, or you know, more time. Him not John Carpenter not having to create these things and, and shoot them so rapid fire, but sometimes that works on certain projects too. So it's hard to say if you know th- this. Um, this is a tragedy or not. But of course, the, you know, there is a silver lining. What we know is that the thing, basically about eight, ten years, it gets reappraised. And John Carpenter is one of those filmmakers who's really benefited from VHS and video and home video um, becoming a thing. So late 70s to early 80s, his films, you know, some of these films are, are films that like, like the thing, maybe the first time you watch it, you don't know what to think. But then you go back to it. Or there was a lot of bad mouthing the thing in the theater, so a lot of people didn't see it. And then eventually they, they go to the video, and you know they've already seen Alien, they've already seen um, um, a bunch of other horror sci-fi movies, or the, this like monster films. Or they or they were curious. They watched the thing and they go, "This movie's great." Like are, you know, um, maybe they haven't heard the bad news uh, or the the bad takes, but either way, they go, "This film's awesome." They keep talking about it, and this keeps building. And of course, Rob Bottin's special effects of these people who cared about special effects, even if they said they're gross, most of them were like, they are, you know, imaginative, they are impressive. That's always been a little um, notch on, on the belt. So eventually this all comes together and the thing becomes a film that's like, oh, no, it's, no, it's good actually. To, no, this is actually, I think it's better than Halloween. This this is like his best movie. And, you know, now it's that's kind of like the big, I think, debate in, in John Carpenter fan, uh, you know, some people who, who you know, try to be cool and like say they like they live the best or Assault and Precinct 13. And, you know, maybe they're being honest, but um, I think most folks come down to the thing in, in Halloween. And I'm, I love them both. I, I basically like, I love a lot of his movies and I like most of them. Uh, but the, the thing is something special. The thing is, he's never going to match... Um, He's never gonna match this movie, in my, and he never does. Like, uh, and one of the things too, which is, which um, this film sort of cements. But he, it was it was the first time he showed us this. But he, John Carpenter, is really good at endings. He's really good at kind of punchline endings, like one, two, boom, and the credits hit. Like, he's not much for denouements and all that kind of stuff, which I, in general, am, am in agreement with. I just want to kind of get to it. So the thing's ending is this ambiguous, dark ending. Um, and two guys freezing to death. Maybe one of them's maybe one of them's an alien. Maybe they're both human. It doesn't really matter. They're they're just gonna die, um, and, and have a drink. Um, with Halloween, Halloween had one of those great endings where Michael Myers gets shot off the balcony. They go out to there. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is like, "Was he the Boogeyman?" Lubin's like, "Yes, I believe he was." He looks at the window. He's gone. And then you see hear the breathing of Michael Myers in all the locations throughout the the whole movie. Awesome, right? Escape from New York, great ending. Um, Snake switches the tape. You have like the crazy old like, uh, jazz playing where the president's supposed to give a speech about you know saving the world. You know, John Carpenter's really good at kind of um, letting you leave the theater or turn off the movie on a high. And the thing, you know, it's a really dark, dour ending. It it it's just it just kind of like punctuates everything you've just seen. It it, it leaves a great taste in the mouth. Even that taste is just like <laughs> doom. But that being said. This is a misunderstood masterpiece. It's the end of the run. This is the end of, of the true run of John Carpenter. He um he kind of sours his career for a while. He um he he you know he didn't make enough money on this movie, so he's got to rebuild, right? And what does he follow with? 1983, he comes out with Christine. So Carpenter's big thing was that he was going to do a Stephen King adaptation of Firestarter. 
He had, you know, he really wanted to do this this Firestar book. He had, you know, had some government agent stuff, there's psychics, teleconnect powers. You know, John Carpenter was, was kind of, you know, all geared up about this. Um, the budget he wanted for it, uh, after the thing flops, they go, nah, dude, uh, n- no. And so they do say, hey, but we have another, you know, Stephen King adaptation. It's the one about the killer car. John Carpenter, I guess they show him the car they want to use. He goes, this thing's breathtaking. I love it. I love this car. So he's like, you know what? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot, you know, a leg to stand on. So this is good. I I can do this. And so the Christine movie is fine. I I think Christine is a good movie. It's actually it's better than has any right in being in in that it's a killer car movie. Um, it kind of feels like the book did, where it's like um, a companion piece to to Carrie. It's a it's another Stephen King teenage teenager going down a dark path and eventually killing all his friends movie. But this is the boy version, so it's about a car. Um. But the movie itself, it does feel like John Carpenter kind of um, dialing back and, and, and kind of holding back on his extra, his John Carpenter flavor, right? He just wants to, um, he, he's playing it safe. And so there are, you know, some great Carpenter moments. There's some this, the score and this and this and that and the, the car destructing, get, getting destroyed and then healing itself in like reverse footage. And then the main character, uh, his the acting is, is great. Um but you know, it's it it doesn't touch the run. It's not it's not as good as Halloween or Escape from New York or The Thing. Um, so it's it's not like the the run picks up again. The run the thing to Christine is such a drop that the, the run is dead. And so we're, we're we we follow that with Starman. And Starman is even more than Christine is John Carpenter sort of playing it safe, but actually it's not. So I say playing safe because it's it's kind of it's been compared to Spielberg. It's very sentimental. It's almost like John Carpenter saw that E.T. Um, squashed the thing at the box office. So he's like, okay, I'll make a fucking E.T. movie. There's an alien that comes down. He helps somebody. He's really nice. He teaches them about love and life. He's sort of this messiah figure in a way. So th- there is that. But at the same time, it's John Carpenter doing a really sincere work, a really um, sort of sentimental work, and people didn't expect that from him. So in a way, it's him still kind of being ballsy going well you know i'm not just this one thing i'm not just this one kind of uh, voice i have other things to say and so i think that's that's commendable i um i used to like it a lot as a kid i rewatched it recently and it's okay it, their their parts are great i think uh jeff bridges does a really good job and so uh, uh carrie allen is, yeah the lady from uh raiders of the lost ark and uh, animal house I, she's always been good and she's really good in this um their performances are kind of um they elevate the film because parts of the film do feel a little derivative of sort of that spielberg close encounters et kind of thing that he had going on the amblin kind of thing in their the early 80s but um it's 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 a fine film kind of like, like christine but i don't think it's run worthy so now the next film though is fucking worthy of the run this film is one of my favorite john carpenter films it's big trouble in little china big trouble in little china is 1986 so this is in a lot of ways, this is like a John Carpenter. Um, he's going for it again, right? They give him a, a, big, a bigger budget again. He gets Kurt Russell back, right? He's, um, he, I think he, he's really trying to see if he can um, compete with the Spielbergs and the Lucases of the world again. If maybe you know, he he sort of like he he he. He was well behaved for his last couple of films, Christine and, and uh, Starman, which did okay. And I think Starman is actually his only film which is nominated for an Oscar. Um, 
I honestly don't remember if it was for him or for directing or maybe just for one of the performances, but it's sort of him, you know, he's like, he's, he's proven he can, he can be a safe bet again. They weren't massive hits, but they weren't duds. They weren't um, flops. So he comes back, Big Trouble in Little China, and I think the film is great. It's a, it's an action adventure. It's um, it's also a deconstruction of um, uh, sort of the white savior um, macho lead um, with John with uh, Kurt Russell's character of Jack Burton, who um, who which is I think really a fun pairing. Snake Plissken is is Kurt Russell vocally doing Clint Eastwood. And doing also a little bit of a, some of his mannerisms from like the, from like the man of no name and the old westerns. Um, <laughs> in uh, in Big Trouble in China, Kurt Russell is doing John Wayne, and he's he's got the John Wayne swagger and he's got that cadence, but this time it's dialed up to fucking thirteen, and it's definitely a joke because the great thing about Big Trouble in China and the reason why I think actually it um it holds up is you know you have all this film and it's you know you have this. The main character is the white dude who's in the middle of this martial arts world, the supernatural uh, characters, you know, different Chinese mythology, and it's all this different stuff. And uh, but he's your, you know, your central character. And so most movies, I think, would have him be like the most capable guy in the world. You know, he's he's like the he's like the white dude who steps up and he's like he he just learns to um, become a Jedi w- within a few seconds, and he he basically masters everyone else's culture um, instantly. Just but and sort of like. You know, the underlying message seems to be, oh, you know, white people are just the best at everything, so it's okay for them to basically colonize shit. Not to be, you know, too up my own ass with my uh, my leftist values, but that's, you know, that's usually what some of these messages can kind of kind of come off as. Big Trouble in China is like, no, Kurt Russell is our main character, but he is a dumbass, and he, he has insane confidence, but is almost nothing he tries actually works out the way he thinks it's going to work out. He's constantly confused. He is essentially the sidekick in the movie. Wang, his friend, is the real main character. Wang's the one who's really got some got got skin in the game. Wang's got um, motivation. Wang makes um, decisions which actually affect things. He he wins fights. He um he's really sort of the the lead. But Jack Burton is our window into this world, and despite him being a uh, a total goofball. He's really, he's really fun, and we like him, and we like him maybe more because he isn't good at anything he does. So, I think that um, that was a really smart move on John Carpenter's part and um, and Kurt Russell's part. I think I don't know if that's the only reason why, but the film, unfortunately, despite being so good and being the best action adventure that I think Kurt, uh, John Carpenter's ever made, the action for the most part, is pretty awesome. And some of the fights things are, are really great. Despite all that, it's another box office dud. Another flop. It does okay. It, does okay. It's not a, it wasn't a, the biggest flop he's had. <laughs> but it wasn't a hit. And it should have been. It really should have been. I feel like, um, I don't know if the audiences were turned off by the fact that the main character, hey, this guy seems, he doesn't know what he's doing, actually. I think, are they making fun of him? Are they making fun of us? I don't know if that was it. I don't know if it just... You know, it, it it's a it's a weird movie. It's it's really weird, despite being sort of a mainstream action adventure thing. There's there's stuff in there which I think John Carpenter was ahead of the curve. Sort of the the martial arts, um, Chinese, um, you know, mythology kind of influence that. In a few years later, the game Mortal Kombat comes around. The Ninja Turtles come around. You know, uh, Frank Miller's already doing stuff in Daredevil, but that becomes more mainstream, and so like the obsession with ninjas and stuff like that is it becomes even more of a 
a mainstream thing for America. So maybe he's just a couple years ahead of stuff, and maybe he's a, he's a big influence on those things, despite his film not being a hit. But it doesn't doesn't connect, and so this feels like it should be the last dalliance with um with the big budgets, right? But he does have at least one more that's kind of like. You know, I'll give him this, like, the he's had ups and downs, but he, they give him a couple shots at the ring, but it doesn't pay off. I'm, I'm, spoilers, it doesn't exactly work out. So, love Big Tremolo Channel. Um, uh, like, also gotta say, like, incredible characters, uh, probably his most quotable movie for me, John Carpenter. There's so many funny lines. Um, Kurt Russell, maybe may my favorite performance of his, It's it's so... It's it's just it's so funny it's so cool it's so and there's actually weird layers to it even though it is kind of one big joke. But uh, you also have David Lopan. David Lopan, oh my God, Lopan is one of my favorite characters of all time. No one else has the word indeed as good as him. So uh, Lopan, another great character. Um, also the theme song. Look up the theme song uh, for Big Trouble in Little China by the Coupe de Villes, which is John Carpenter. Um, and then the guy who actually played Michael Myers in the first movie, uh, and uh, one other guy, they they had, they were in a band when they were in like college, and they brought the band back together to do a theme song. And John Carpenter sings a very Jim Morrison Jim Morrison kind of croon, and it's very '80s fucking Cheesecake Factory, but it's really catchy and fun, and I, I think you'll dig it. It's it's him and Castle Castle Frank Castle, uh, not Frank Castle, that's the Punisher, Nick Castle who uh, played Michael Myers. Uh, that, that's who's in the band. <laughs> the video is so good. Uh, they're wearing kimonos and like sunglasses. It's, it's so fucking good. Okay, so Big Trouble in China could have been the start of a new run. That, that film was definitely just as good. If you would have inserted that, like if he would have somehow made like Escape from New York, The Thing, and then that, uh, or just take out The Fog, I mean, the run would have been unstoppable. But it's not. It's an isolated, great work. The next work is Prince of Darkness, and it's funny. I think this is one of those films where um, it, people come come back around and they swung it too far. People are now saying this is his masterpiece or one of his great works, or or it's definitely you know as good as insert Halloween thing or whatever. And I I really want to love it, but I I don't think it's that good. I think it's still a bit of a mess, and I think um, it kind of repeats the mistakes of the Fog, unfortunately. In that the 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 scripts uh, the the scripts characters lack uh, lack enough for me to be really compelled to follow them around, right? So it's another big ensemble cast, um, but none the, maybe it's the actors. Maybe you know this thing is on a you know very small budget. Maybe it's the script itself, but um, no no one there's a few there's very few characters who I really feel like are that um special and that unique. And the things they say are that interesting. And it also repeats, um, he's got a new, uh, you know, fucking uh, boxcar uh, racer version of Chuck Norris, a blonde mustache dude who's, um, I don't know if he's slaying, slaying the ladies, but he's definitely got, like, more action than he should. Well, this guy, I will say, is, this guy's decent looking. Like, if you shave the mustache, he's, he's generically handsome enough that I could see this happening, you know? But, um... What? But the film's also got a bunch of stuff that doesn't really go anywhere. So I like I like the the big ideas of the film. The film is like kind of like the fuck. Great premise, really interesting ideas. He's going back to sort of like the a little bit of the Lovecraft thing from the thing, 
this otherworldly terror, but he's, he's bringing in like different different uh, elements, almost like um, Cronenberg's Videodrome, where he's he's talking about videotape and and media and and, and kind of connecting that to weird otherworldly horror. Um, and there's a lot of cool stuff with that, and some cool visuals and some really creepy stuff. Uh, great score. But again, the characters don't really matter to me that much, and there's some dumb shit like Alice Cooper's homeless guy and sort of zombie army thing doesn't do anything for me. Um, that's kind of kind of kind of dorky, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know if like I don't know if this film, if they had a bigger budget, if Kurt Russell and Jamie Lee Curtis and other um, John Carpenter alumni, if they came in and did certain roles, if that would have elevated things and made it work all of a sudden, or if the script had enough problems they had to get fixed um on, on that level i do like seeing that um john carpenter's sort of second tier character actors there's a lot of people from like big trouble little china and halloween and other films they all kind of come together so you have a little bit of the john carpenter players kind of coming together in this one that's kind of cool to see but um i just think that there's not you sort of, we sort of need that big actor charisma to kind of carry this thing and it doesn't really work so that that's a dud in my estimation he follows it with another hit, another um, another film that I think is worthy of the run, um, and that's They Live, 1988's They Live. I think this is worthy of the run. I think it might be barely worthy of the run, and that's, don't worry, I love They Live, but there's it's it's not a perfect film. And so what what is awesome is that this is Sean Carper's most punk rock fucking movie ever. It's... um. It's actually become also one of his most influential movies as far as the culture goes. Obey and this sort of like, you know, this conspiracy theory sort of thing is huge now. And it's, and he really, um, he's, he's supplied some of the iconography and some of the, the um, terminology that people use on the left and the right and all over are people who use to make fun of conspiracy theory people. Um, he, this film has such a big um, stamp that's left, such a big mark. What's funny, though, is that, you know, it's an, it's another isolated uh, uh, hit, another, another isolated mark, on, another isolated um, part of a run, you know, a little mini run, but um, it wasn't a hit. It was, again, it, this was a cheaper movie, so it did okay, it, but it, it this film wasn't, like, something that was talked about a lot at the time, but it's, like the thing, people keep coming back to it. Keep and it, it, it's there's been so many homages and and riffs on it. I think it's uh it's it's survived a lot longer than I think even John Carpenter thought it might have. And so the film, you know, Roddy Roddy Rowdy Roddy Piper, our pro wrestler, plays the main character Nod Nada, and Keith David um from the thing and, the, and um he's sort of the the number two guy in the movie and he I think. They have good good chemistry, and I think Roddy Piper is actually a decent actor for a wrestler. And I think Keith David helps. They talked about it on set, like you know, he he would help him with some of his lines, and maybe I think Keith David's got enough um, acting chops that he could kind of up uh, Piper's game a little bit, and it works out. I do think that maybe because the guy's a blonde mullet and he's you know a buff dude, and he's in John Carpenter movie, it feels like this could have been a Kurt Russell role, and I can't help but wonder what what the film would have been with Kurt Russell. You would have lost some things. You would have lost some of the, the awesome cheeseball factors of, of Roddy Piper um, delivering his lines. And I think a lot of his lines he made up himself because he's he's a wrestler and he he could talk some shit like no one else and he could he could write his own um, shit talkings. 
So you would have lost some that you might you might lose the big line. You might lose um, I came in to kick ass and chew bubblegum and I'm all out of bubblegum because I think that's actually a, a Piper original. But you get you you add Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell would have done something I'm sure really memorable and really fun and interesting. And so with a bigger budget, is they live better? I don't know because part of what's great about it is how low budget and it feels like Kurt, uh, John Carpenter kind of doing like well I'm gonna do like a you know. A, the Red Scare kind of kind of uh, paranoid sci-fi movie from the back in the day, but you know I, I'm a lefty who hates Reagan, and so you know I'm going to use those sort of uh, tools a different way, and I think it being kind of low budge, and I I think that kind of helps it. It, it kind of adds to the flavor, and it adds to the '80s kind of punk rock, Black Flag kind of American punk rock vibe it has. It, it kind of feels like a a sister film to Repo Man, um, or even Return of the Living Dead. It kind of feels like there's a this sort of um, genre punk uh, thing going on in the '80s, and this is part of that. So I don't know, but unfortunately, it's going to be a while till we get a, a, another uh, another film worthy of the run. Actually, not that while. It's actually there's another there's another dud. Basically, he's, he's got like a good one dud, good one dud for going for a while. The next one is a memoir, Memoirs of an Invisible Man from 92. So four years later, he's, take, he's taking some big breaks, right? This is this is him stepping in. I think the original director got fired or, or just had to bow out or something like that. And so he comes in, John Carpenter comes in to direct this Chevy Chase movie, which is kind of an adventure film. And, you know, Chevy Chase's star is fucking waning. And he's it's, it's not the right... I think Chevy Chase is trying to do his, his own Ghostbusters and... Like nothing but trouble. The film he he did, um, I think before this, maybe afterwards. It doesn't work out. It's it's not going to be Ghostbusters. He he doesn't have that kind of um, energy. And so, the film is it's just it's just okay. And if, this one probably feels like the least John Carpentery of all his films. It feels like he really just got a paycheck, and it's it's not like it's badly shot. It just feels like he's not injecting a lot of his own um, passion into it, and it suffers for that. So it's it's very forgettable to me. But he does meet Sam Neill on set, and he likes Sam Neill, and him and Sam Neill make the next film, which is John Carpenter's last great film, uh, 1994's In the Mouth of Madness. This is the last great work, so, you know, the run's, the broken run is, is long gone, but he's had some isolated awesomeness, right? This is the last of those, and this is, to me definitely as good as the rest of the the original run if they live like kind of like questionable um this is as good as big trouble in little china and both those two films are definitely as good as um at least they're as worthy to be included in the conversation as halloween and uh the thing and assault and precinct 13 the mouth of madness is um another sort of voltron moment where he's um taking a lot of because he's done a lot of different things he's taking a lot of the stuff he's done before he's putting together and he's doing something new with it and so he, what's funny is he, he's he's bringing back the Lovecraft influence big time, um, and it's it's right in your face, right? This this time it's like I'm talking about Lovecraft, um, but he's also talking about Stephen King, which is sort of this fun thing that he's um, John Carpenter kind of comes up at the same time as Stephen King, and in a way he's a sort of a cinematic version of Stephen King, but just a guy who's not as um, wildfire successful. He's become a master of horror himself. And In the Mouth of Madness is this great film, which is, has these really surreal moments. 
um, some really genuinely creepy stuff, some funny stuff. Sam Neill's performance is, um, every time I rewatch it once in a while and it's, he's, he does a lot. He, he, he's sleazy. He's, he, but he's also, you're on his side. He's smart, but he's, he's, he's also not so smart. He's like the doc, Dr. Who smart where he gets annoying. Um, in the Mouth of Madness, there, there's so much going on and, um, you know, it's a decent amount, decent budget. So the production looks pretty good. Um, there's some great special effects too that actually um, John Carpenter I think I think it might be from the thing he sort of feels like um, he's um, not showing you too much he wants to keep it more hidden I think he took you know the thing was starting to get reappraised at the time but I think he was still kind of feeling like uh, the the wounds of people saying he was just like a, a gore hound or he's just relying on special effects to, instead of story and I kind of feel like he should show a little bit more of some of these creature effects because like I've seen like photos of it of some of the stuff and they're great bonkers crazy shit but um it's effective seeing them in the shadow a lot but it, every once in a while I'm like I just want like one slightly more uh a lingering of a shot here and here or there but um the film is great. You know, there's, it's, um, there might be some, the, the ending is also one of his best endings. He, you know, he, he's, he's fucking good at those endings, man. He comes through at the end. One of my favorite endings. Um, there's some stuff in the third act that kind of gets a little, um, it loses its focus a little bit, but it's not enough to, to derail the thing. So it's a, it's a great work. And unfortunately it is, it is his last great one. What falls is a bunch of stuff. Um, there's a bunch of misfires, you know? So Village of the Damned is um, 95, and this is really dull. This is sort of the opposite of his reimagining uh, remake of The Thing. So this is so faithful to the original that it kind of makes itself pointless. There's really no... It's like, well, if you're just going to almost shot for shot remake the old one, um, what are we doing? Like, what's the what's what's going on here? So that didn't do it for me. And then this, is, this next one hurts, because the next one... You know, it feels like, oh man, this is, this could have been great. This could have been, in a way, a victory lap. This could have been a later in the career victory lap, even though it's not really part of the run. The next film is 96's uh, Escape from L.A., so a sequel to Escape from New York, his only sequel that he actually directs, even though it's questionable. He's, he might he definitely shot a few scenes. He actually directed a few scenes at Halloween, too, but it's not his film, and, and we're not going to count that. So Escape from L.A., you know, I, I'm willing to forgive, like, the worst CGI shark in movie history that's at the beginning, but the film is just not as fun as it as it seems to think it is. It's just not as it's it's just not as much of a celebration as um, of the first film as and Snake Plissken the character as as it um it needs to be. It's um and there's a great cast. There's like Bruce Campbell comes in, uh, Pam Greer. There's so many people having fun with it. Um, it it definitely does the thing the first film did where it takes New York. And it plays up the different um, tropes and the cliches we have in New York. So this does that with L.A. But it's just um, it's it's just not it's just not good. It's just not uh, fun. It's just not um, exciting. Um, some of the lines just come off really bad and clunky and and pulpy in the bad way. Um, Kurt Russell is still having a ball as Snake Plissken and. Uh, but what comes becomes really apparent now is that now this is post James Cameron's um, his, his T2 and his you know aliens and other films like that um, the action is really bad in this um, the action is not what it needs to be it's not um, it's not efficient even 
Um, so the Escape from New York, that was a little older film, so you kind of forgive um, the action not be, really being up to snuff. And this one, it's like, no, we've we've all, as as a, as a an audience, kind of we're past what what this is providing action wise. And this is an action film. That's a big uh, that's a big problem. All that being said, I will say this is one of his best endings ever. Uh, and it's one of the best endings of anyone's ever had. I wish the rest of the movie was fucking as good as his ending. The ending of the movie is essentially there's some sort of MacGuffin which will turn off, um, it'll, it'll null out all electricity and all electronic things across the whole globe. It's a satellite that will just basically take us back to the Dark Ages, right? And Snake Plissken's trying to get this thing from the bad guys and all this stuff. And Snake Plissken just goes, fuck it. He just turns it, he just hits the button. The satellite goes, all the power goes out everywhere. Everything's lost. The entire um, the world order has been upturned. And Snake Plissken, um, he blows out a match, and and it's basically um, it, <laughs> that's the ultimate cynical statement from Snake Plissken and John Carpenter. This is basically him saying society, mankind, all of it, big mistake. We should we should restart. Fuck it. Throw the world in chaos. Start over again. It's um, it, it's 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 such a a, it's such a teenage kind of thing, but it's sold by this character and in this world, it's such a heightened world. Um, I love it. I love that ending. I just really wish the rest of the film came close to matching that. Um, and so you have three more films in his, that round out his career, and that's Vampires from '98. And when I first saw it, I, I, I thought it was a very, it's very much a less cool from Dusk Till Dawn. And Rewatching it like maybe ten years ago, it's it is it's it's just not as much fun as as that vampire action film was. And James Woods, I mean he's he, James Woods can be really fun. Um, it's okay. He's kind kind of past. He's past. He's tried to be cool in this film. He's he's past be, being cool in any way. And so the, the film, nothing special. Ghost of Mars fucking sucks. Ghost of Mars. It, it's basically like a remake of the basic premise of Assault on Precinct 13, but with a sci, sci-fi kind of makeover. But the action is really bad, and I, I hate to harp on that, but if he keeps making action films, you, you figure you should be good at making action. Like The action should have um, be easy to follow, should be exciting, should be um, there should be storytelling within the action, and there's not that. Um, the, the acting, the characters, and, and even the setting, it's Mars and stuff like that, but basically he doesn't do much with that. Um, it doesn't feel fresh. It feels like um, it feels like his 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 inspirations kind of running dry. And then lastly, is the ward. And the ward came out in twenty ten, right? So, um, I I haven't seen the ward. I haven't heard anything. You no, know, no one said like, this is it. This is a return of form. It seems to be a horror film. Amber Heard uh, in a Psycho Ward. It sounds kind of cool. I really wanna. Uh, I think I will check it out at some point. But um. Nothing I've read or seen in the trailer itself has not made me go, oh, I'm so compelled. I gotta see. I gotta see John Carpenter still still comes through. I kind of think he. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he thought he, he he had something to say and then he made it and maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe this film was great. Um, maybe he just did it to to get a paycheck. I kind of doubt that. I think he's doing fine residuals and I feel like he's kind of somewhat comfortable with where he is in the culture right now as far as his position goes his films um like the thing and uh, big trouble china even though they have flopped they've become beloved they have huge cult audiences they um you know they they're um they they um have such a fervor behind them i think he's very um i think he's i feel i think he feels 
I'm good about that. I hope so. You know, I don't know, but um, I think John Carpenter, this is a good example of a broken run, but if you look at the whole career, even some of those films which um, didn't really work that were duds, there's such um, such a voice, such a point of view that comes through most of these work, these works, and you know he he probably won't make another movie, and that's fine. He's he's made so many fucking movies that are good or interesting, or at the very least they they definitely come from a singular voice, and that's his. And he he's you know he's done what I think most artists are trying to do. He's 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 created his own style, and at the very least he's got some awesome synth albums that are coming out now and right now he's um as influential as he is as a filmmaker his music this is the moment for for his synth sound like there's so many i had, I had a podcast before this and the score was based a john carpenter ripoff score it's so omnipresent it's funny like in the 90s um you know that shit was it, it felt a little old and dated and and he he kind of like in, in the mouth of madness and a few other films he kind of uh, instead of doing his usual score he had like metal scores or rock scores or just traditional strings he 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 moved away from himself but now it's like man I I it's such a comfort food creepy comfort food like the Halloween theme itself is like the sinister version of chopsticks it's uh, um it's it, you can't beat it right it just it um. The, the music will live on no matter what. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in five years it'll be it'll be dated and, and no one will like it. But uh, I always will enjoy it. But that being said, okay, end of the he had a broken run, but it's full of of incredible work, influential work. He helped create a subgenre of film. He um, I will say this: if he makes another film, I want him to just do a full on western. He had a western he was been trying to make for years that I eventually got made by somebody else. I think. Um, but uh, I, I would love for him to finally fully embrace that. I think that's kind of like, that'd be the greatest um, end cap to his career. Like, the, you know, a final statement. Um, but we'll see. I, I At the same time, he doesn't owe me or anyone anything. I think he's 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 done it. He's said what he's had to say. And uh, he's had to say a lot of things. And he, he shook the pillars of heaven. Thanks a lot for listening. Um... Take care of yourself, and we'll be back soon. And I think next on the slab, we're going to have, um, if I get my act together, it's going to be Frank Miller or somebody else. So thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye.